Hi, my name is Jan Wilczek from thewolfsound.com. Welcome to Wolf Talk, a podcast about audio programming. In this podcast, you will learn how to build your career in programming or research related to audio, meet programmers and researchers from all around the world, and learn about the intricacies of sound. Hi everyone and welcome to the 15th episode of the Wolf Talk podcast. Today I have another very, very special guest for you, namely Oliver Larkin, a rock star in the world of audio programming. He comes from Great Britain and I think he's most widely known for being the creator of the iPlug 2 framework, which is a kind of alternative to Juice, where you can have one code base and build various plugin formats and also easily create a graphical user interface. But not only this, he's the inventor, so he co-inventor of web audio modules, and he's also very well known for his own plugins, for example, a virtual emulation in various forms of the Casio CZ101 synthesizer. He worked for Arturia, he worked for Focusrite, he now works for Ableton in Berlin, and it's hard for me to imagine if there's a place in the audio programming space that he has not yet explored. We personally met at the Digital Audio Effects conference 2022 and he'll be presenting at the audio developers conference 2023 so we'll also meet there and i'm extremely happy to be able to finally interview him this interview was recorded on october the 25th 2023 and all the people places and the references mentioned in this podcast can be found under dwolfsound.com slash talk zero one Five, And before we delve into the interview, two quick announcements. So one is that I'll be also presenting at the Audio Developers Conference 2023. So if you have a chance to visit my talk, which will be on making sure that your audio software really works and it doesn't break, then I highly encourage you to listen to it. Typically, uh, the YouTube recordings start to appear around two months after the conference and then gradually all the talks or most of the talks are published. And the second announcement is that if you would like to follow Oli Larkin's footsteps and you're curious what, which pieces of knowledge are needed for it, then I highly encourage you to grab the free audio plugin developer checklist. It's a free checklist that lists every bit of knowledge that is necessary to become an audio plugin developer. And you can get it for free at dwolfsound.com slash checklist. And now, Oli Larkin. Hi, Oli. Thanks for agreeing on this interview. Could you introduce yourself to the audience? Hello. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm Oli Larkin. Uh, I am an audio programmer, uh, C++ uh, software engineer um, by day, and also doing lots of stuff uh, by night. Uh, I do... Um, yeah, I developed the iPlug2 audio plugin framework um i've done 
I've developed several audio plugins um, over the years, and I've been working, or at least uh, interested in the the whole world of audio software development for quite a long time now, um, around twenty years. Um, so yeah, I, I used to work in academia, and uh, nowadays I am in the industry. So I work at Ableton, and yeah. That's, that's really amazing. That's really amazing. And I hope we can delve into each of these topics uh, along the way today. Uh, we met, I think, over one year ago. And since then, I really, really wanted to do this podcast. I'm really excited that it's finally happening. So could you maybe share where did your interest in music start? Well, uh, yeah, my, my father is uh, really, really passionate about music and always had a vast amount of uh, CDs and um, interesting musical instruments like uh, sitar, the Indian sitar, and uh, he played guitar a lot, um, sang a bit. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think I probably get it from him. Um, he was never a professional musician, but um, he would play a lot uh play music a lot listen to music a lot um and yeah i started learning classical guitar when i went to secondary school when i was around 11 years old and sort of um fell in with the uh the music crowd at school so um yeah uh, it was uh it sort of developed from being interested in playing music to being interested in recording music um, when I was at school. Um, so yeah, that, that's how it started. Okay, and how did you went from recording music then to audio programming? Um, so recording music became more producing music. Um, and when I was uh, sort of in my late teens, uh, I was interested a lot in electronic music. And... Um, trying to uh, use modular synthesizers and things like this to uh, to make interesting sounds. I mean, this was all on the computer. Uh, I didn't have any hardware synthesizers at the time. Um, but uh, yeah, I uh, gradually wanted to make more and more interesting sound design. Um, and that led me to the more sort of... Um, Uh, the, the programs that let you uh, go a bit deeper and uh, I started to want to make my own oscillators or my own filters and these kind of building blocks that you can then use um, in a bigger patch inside a, something like SynthEdit or, or MaxMSP. So that was really my first uh, step towards doing audio programming, um, making these little components that would slot into the, the bigger modular synthesizer program. And uh, did you already start dabbling into this quasi programming stuff or programming stuff, uh, depending on how you classify Max before your university? Or was it already uh, when you went to university? Um, it was really when I went to university that I, I was introduced to Max. Um, at the time I went to university, I, I was sort of... Um, thinking I was more interested in music production. Um, I didn't really plan on uh, becoming a software engineer at that point. Um, 
So yeah, I, I went to Huddersfield University in the north of England, which um, had a um, a lot of uh, composers who work with um, with Max and uh, do what what might be called acousmatic or electroacoustic music, um, and we we had a few um, modules on the university course where I got to got to learn Max MSP. Um, I think it was one year of Max, which was just like MIDI processing, basically. And th then the second year we did MSP, which was um, the, the real-time audio signal processing. Um, and this is when Max MSP had a uh, very uh, <laughs> um, sharp corners on all the boxes. So no nowadays everything's a bit curvy, but uh, back then it was on... Uh, Mac OS 9 and um, yeah, every, everything looks a bit different. <laughs> yeah, that's that's so true. And uh, how did you go from uh, Max to then learning C++? Because as I understand, you learned C++ entirely on your own. Um, yeah, pretty much. I did. Um, I did have some some courses in that at university as well, but very, very, a very small part of the curriculum. Um, and yeah, it was really kind of my own initiative to, to learn C plus plus. And, um, yeah, that really started because I, I was using Max and I was using synth edit and they both have SDKs, software development kits, um, which let you build these um, unit generators or modules or little little components that you slot into the the main program. Um, and um, yeah, I um, I wanted to to make um, make these things. I, I I'm just remembering now. <laughs> it's a long time ago, but at that time, Max was a a C C only. SDK, so I was learning bits of C programming for Max. Uh, Since that, it was a C plus plus SDK. Um, but basically, I um, by focusing on the on these small components, um, I was able to um, kind of limit the the kind of task that I was trying to accomplish to something that was relatively manageable. Um, and yeah, I um, I built several collections of objects uh, or modules or <laughs> unit generators for both of these environments. Um, funnily enough, I got an email um, yesterday of someone asking if they if I had a copy of a synthetic module that I made twenty years ago, and I have no idea where that <laughs> where that is now. So I had to say uh, no. I'm sorry. Um, Anyway, uh, yeah, there was no GitHub back then, right? Yeah, this was before GitHub. It was before, um, really, before everyone was into version control. Um, there were some little, uh, there was a little bit of information on the internet about um, how to do things, and there was a, a website called musicdsp.org which had various um, code snippets. So I would often be, you know taking some code from there and trying to to put it into a um a max object or a synth edit object um and yeah i i 
I did have the goal of developing um, VSD plugins entirely in C++, um, but I really struggled for quite a long time to to reach that um, level of understanding because back at that in that time there was the, the available resources were very different to what they are now. Um, Juice wasn't such a big thing. Um, this is before I discovered iPlug, and yeah, basically you had the uh, the Steinberg VST SDK, which had two examples that um, didn't really show you very much and didn't often didn't compile. <laughs> uh, so it was really a very big hurdle to develop a plugin entirely in in C plus um, plus. But yeah, by working with these um, sort of uh, plug-in SDKs that were a bit simpler. Um, I gradually got more and more confident um, until I was eventually able to to switch and to to make my plugins in, entirely in C plus plus. Well, that's awesome, and I think it's great that this was a very practical learning. So you wanted to do concrete stuff uh, in musical terms, in let's say production terms and you wanted to use c++ as a tool to achieve those goals and basically c++ allowed you to uh, cross the limitations of the tools that you were using before like max or synth edit and i feel that's way more different that, than how people think about c++ now they often come to the audio programming field and they uh, want to learn c++ but C++ in general, whereas you did learn it for specific purposes. I think it's a very important hint that, that anyone could take home. And uh, yeah, it's we're lucky to be alive in, in an era where the resources are so plentiful. So uh, you were studying, you were learning C++ on your own. Then uh, how did it happen that you landed, let's say, your first gig as an audio programmer? Um, yeah, so after I finished university, um, I wasn't uh, really certain what kind of job I would I would get, uh, but I was lucky that something came up which uh, required skills in Max MSP, and uh, I developed those um, a lot uh, at university. So um, I was in. Uh, quite a good position to to do that. I um, my first job was at the University of Leeds in the north of England, and um, I was working on a, a European research project, which was um, something that involved nine different um, institutions, and um, it was a project called iMaestro, where basically people were trying to to make some um, or a piece of software with lots of different, or that would cover lots of different aspects of music education, um, and yeah, basically the the theme of this European project was to to enhance music education with technology, um, and yeah, EACAM was involved. That's like a, a very famous research centre in Paris, um, and they're also famous for using Max MSP a lot. Um, so 
yeah, they, they were using that for, for their part of the project, which involved this augmenting violins with sensors and things like this. But uh, my, my lab at, uh, at Leeds University was using a motion capture system. Uh, and we were putting lots of um, these uh, reflective markers on cellists and on violin players. And we developed a system uh, in it was built using Max MSP plus a lot of uh, C++ externals uh, or objects um, that allowed us to, to get that uh, 3D tracking data from this motion capture system and to visualize that in OpenGL and... Um, do some sonification and um yeah we, we built a quite a nice tool that showed the cello in 3d with uh, all of the different angles between the bow and the instrument and things like this uh so yeah that was a really really fun project um i was a a research assistant on that project which was um yeah kind of uh, a little bit strange that i would i managed to land that job uh because i hadn't done a master's and a PhD, which is normally the route that people take to um, to then become a research assistant on a on a European research project. So I was a little bit into the into the deep end and writing lots of reports uh, on deliverables that you know stated our progress and things like this. Um, but I, yeah, I also got to do quite a lot of programming and uh, got to look, go to lots of conferences like the. ICMC, the International Computer Music Conference, and the NIME conference, and conference on new interfaces for musical expression. So yeah, that was a really good sort of um, stepping stone. And I, I did a bit of teaching at that time as well, but my main job was on on this on this research project. Awesome. And and which year was it? Because this technology sounds pretty advanced. That was two thousand and six. Um, yeah. Okay, great. So what was your next step then in your uh, career? So, yeah, I, um, I worked on that project for just over two years. Um, and because that was a, um, a fixed term research project, I, I, the project ended and, um, then, uh, yeah, basically because of my experience on that project, I was able to get a job at the University of York, which is uh, not so far from Leeds. Um, and there I was, um, I had a, um, a position as a research support programmer. And I was also doing some sort of systems administration because uh, they had a lot of uh, old uh, SGI servers back back from before when uh, Macs and PCs could do real-time audio, they had a big grant to do uh, to get all these SGI machines, which are these absolutely massive blue... Um, well, there was a, a, a hard drive that was about 500 megabytes, and it was like a huge, huge thing. Um, and then we had all these little blue uh, SGI um, O2 machines that I had to look after. Um so yeah, that was um, that was a very interesting job to get because um, there were some really cool research projects that um, the department was was working on, and uh, they were they were kind of collaborations with um, arts organisations a bit more than 
they were um, typical university research projects. So um, yeah, York, York University has um, a, a reputation for doing lots of research in spatial audio, and uh, in particular ambisonics, which is a, a certain kind of spatial audio. And um, we were basically um, commissioned to help with a, a very um, large-scale sound art project called The Morning Line, which was um, this uh, pavilion which uh, had fi around 50 loudspeakers inside it, several different areas where composers would um, basically uh, write, write, they'd write a piece for the sculpture and they'd position sound in these different areas and um, yeah, the sound would often be rendered using ambisonics. Um, other techniques were used as well. But um, yeah, this was a really, really exciting project to be involved with because um, this pavilion was installed in several different um, European cities. Um, and yeah, it was even in Istanbul in the most amazing location right by the Bosphorus and all by these uh, big mosques. And uh, it was a fantastic experience. There were lots of very famous sound artists who were commissioned to write pieces for the, the sculpture. So we, we worked closely with them to, to realize their, um, their works for it. And it was, it was just a really good fun, uh, good, uh, really good fun, a really good opportunity for me. Um, well, that really sounds amazing. And and uh, did you did you have to learn about ambisonics from scratch, or were you already familiar at this point with ambisonics? Um, I hadn't done anything with ambisonics before that, but um, yeah, my um, colleague at the time, um, Dave Mallon, was a um, kind of one of the main people who was keeping the fire burning for this particular spatial audio technique, which was originally developed in the 1970s. Um, but uh, actually at that time, it, there weren't that many people using it, uh, but he was one of the sort of world uh, authorities on this um, format for spatial audio. Of course, anyone who knows about uh, spatial audio at all will know that when VR became a big thing in the last 10 or so years, um, ambisonics was suddenly very popular again because it's the perfect uh, spatial audio technique for um, for that format because it's very easy to rotate the sound field, um, just like what you need to do if, if uh, someone's wearing a VR headset and you need to keep the sound coherent. Um, so, yeah, um, I was lucky to have uh, a real expert to to ask about uh, the technique, and yeah, we. Um, it, to be honest, it was it was a fairly well understood problem at that time. Uh, but I I did a lot of work um, developing software again using using MaxMSP to to realize these um, very massively multi-channel um, spatial compositions where which allowed people to to, to work with ambisonics or uh, other, other techniques and position sounds in various areas of the sculpture. So, so yeah, that, that was mainly the, the challenge there. And yeah, oft, often like trying to um, uh, 
realize these compositions on very tight deadlines because uh, every time this this pavilion moved to a different place um there was a, a concert and uh the compositions had to be realized just in time for the concert and stuff like this so yeah um but yeah we we had um a world expert in 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 house so it was it was easy for me to to learn <laughs> yeah that's that's definitely that's definitely helps Mm, you mentioned that you were teaching at this time also at the university or on your so could you tell a little bit about uh, this experience uh, how was it like and what were the biggest challenges if you if you still remember that people new to the field of of audio programming face yeah so um Although I wasn't officially a lecturer, I did did do a bit of teaching because I had some expertise in in Max, and uh, I did some C programming teaching as well um, on the master's music technology course. Um, and yeah, it was um, it was it was good, uh, but it it was a challenge because um, often you, on these kinds of courses you have people from all sorts of different backgrounds with different kinds of technical. Um, experience and um, you can probably tell from the kind of things that I do but I, I like to to do programming that has some kind of uh, res uh, useful musical outcome and um, especially with low-level programming languages like C uh, it's very hard like even over a, a year-long university course um, for people to get to the kind of level where they can really um, create something that's useful or different to what else is already available or um, so yeah it was um, it was challenging um, but I like to try and always keep the examples that I would use musical um, and yeah sort of try and um, help people um, get even people who might not end up doing low level coding or even using max as a more as a programmer um try to kind of give them like bit, bits of information uh, and ready made patches that i had um that showed illustrated things that i had learned that um that might be useful for them uh, going forward in whatever way they would take their degree so yeah Of course, some people really loved it and got really stuck in, and uh, other for other people it was really uh, probably their least favorite part of the course. Um, but uh, yeah, it was it was nice to have all sorts of different kinds of students together working on projects. Um, so yeah, I, th I think these days it's probably it would probably be a lot easier because there's, as you said before, there's so much more available online in terms of. Um, uh, very robust frameworks like juice and iplug or um you know lots of youtube uh, <laughs> youtube channels uh, such as your own uh, where people can learn about these things um they don't have to um rely so much on course materials or textbooks that might be out of date and this kind of thing yeah definitely definitely and uh, i i think i can understand the Uh, impression that you got because i also attended c++ audio programming courses and uh, 
as you said, there were people who loved it and wanted even more, and there were people who really hated it and didn't want to do any, didn't want to have anything to do with programming later on. So it really depends uh, on the individual. Okay, and uh, after your position at the University of York, uh, where did your path then take you? So yeah, I was at uh, York for seven years. Um, and um, yeah, because of my sort of um, slightly strange route into academia, like most uh, most people, uh, friends of mine who, who work in academia these days, they they did an undergraduate degree, then they did a master's degree, and then they did a PhD, and then they started applying for postdocs or research assistant jobs, and then they became a lecturer, and they they followed a um, a more obvious uh, uh, research career path um, and yeah I, I sort of found myself working in that, this environment but um, I only had an undergraduate degree um, and so I felt a little bit limited um, of course I was also doing lots of uh, plugin development on the side um, but yeah I, I felt like I wasn't able to um, to really develop my career without uh, getting a PhD basically so um, I did go to study one um, and I wasn't totally sure actually at that time because I was I was um, doing a lot of uh, plugin development and yeah I um, I'd released I think I'd released uh, virtual CZ at that time and it was doing quite well so I sort of was thinking maybe I could also go into the industry at, at that stage but I did. I, I thought I've got so much experience in in working in universities. I should get the PhD so that uh, I maybe can come back here, even if I want to go into industry for a bit. Um, so I went to study a PhD at Huddersfield again, um, and um, yeah, I uh, was working um, a lot once again with Ambisonics um, because. The, they have some very uh, nice spatial audio setups there, um, and I had some. I had access to some really amazing facilities. Um, they have a, a studio called the Spiral, which has got like twenty-five um, Genelec eighty forties, I think, um, and it's really nicely soundproof. And I had uh, a lot of access to this facility, and uh, also my my second supervisor. Hyun Kuk Lee in the engineering department had um, a really amazing spatial audio um, lab there. And uh, he is a real world expert in the field at the moment. So um, I, I learned an awful lot about the process of binauralization um, of all sorts of uh, audio formats. But I, I was working with Ambisonics a lot because uh, I was very interested in, in that format. and. Fortunately, with Amazon, well, with Amazonics, when you, when you want to work in higher orders, which is what gets you gets you better spatial fidelity, you need to have lots of loudspeakers to to decode onto. Um, so, I was making the most of it, and uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, I um, I did did that for three years, um, but I. Um, 
Yeah, I wasn't uh, the best PhD student in the world, and I was a bit distracted with um, various other things going on in, in my life. And uh, I had, uh, yeah, some. Uh, I was quite excited at this point um, about the iPlug Two project. Um, also, I had some. Uh, I had the chance to work with Arturia at this time, and um, yeah. It's, uh, I'm not very proud of it, but uh, I, I was uh, doing all sorts of different things. And um, if you're doing a PhD, you really need to focus on the PhD. Um, so I ended up uh, leaving that, that PhD without completing it. Um, but I learned an awful lot about uh, those technologies. And I, I feel like um, I got a lot out of those years. Um, and um yeah i'm uh, still passionate about spatial audio which maybe we'll talk about in a bit but yeah yes yeah, so i understand that, that you simply cannot do everything and you, if you have a lot of good or very good opportunities you simply need to pick one of them you cannot pursue them all yeah so yeah. I, I, i totally totally understand mm, so If I understand correctly, why while you had those permanent positions, you started developing plugins then on the side. Is it correct? Yeah. Um, so the first um, first plugin I released was called Endless Series, and this is a um, it's like a modulation effect that's based on the Shepard tone auditory illusion. And um, I released the version one of that in 2003 when I was um, still studying at Huddersfield University and that was built with SynthEdit. Then when I was when I was working at Leeds University um, I released version two of Endless Series and that was built with um, Maxim SP and Plugo which was the, the technology that predated Max for Live which allowed you to export plugins from um, Max patches. Um, and then in 2000 11 I released uh, Endless Series version 3 when I was working at York University and that was a fully C++ plugin that was built with iPlug2 no sorry iPlug1 uh, iPlug2 didn't exist at that stage yeah. and uh, so Endless Series uh, I, I understand it was your original idea mm, and uh, did you can you maybe expand on this and and uh, Tell a little bit about your other. Uh, I mean, I know you had you have a lot of plugins, but could you maybe name the the ones that are most important uh, to you? And how did you come with come up with those ideas? And uh, yeah, how would you maybe uh, encourage others, or could you give some tips to others on how to make their plugins stand out in the ways that your did, obviously? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's an extremely uh, crowded marketplace these days, um, saturated marketplace. So it's a real challenge um, also because it's um, because so many more people are able to develop plugins because of things like Juice um, and because there's so many more resources. Um, there's lots more people doing it. And um, so, yeah, you, you do have to make something that stands out um and yeah i in these well 
and Ember series is, is an original plugin. And in this, in this circumstance, I sort of got really interested in, um, this particular technique, um, which the shepherd tone is, is quite well known, at, but, um, it's not been, there's not loads of plugins out there that, um, let you do it. I think at the time, um, there was one by M MDA, which is a, one of the earliest, um, collections of free VST plugins that was, um, available. Um, but apart from that, there, I don't think there were any other shepherd tone plugins at the time. Um, and it start that project started because I was actually doing, um, I did an essay at, for one of the modules at the university about this particular technique. And I did lots of research into how it had been used in, um, uh, early electronic music. There was, um, composers like Jean-Claude Risse, who would work with, um, very early versions of, um, what is now C sound or the thing it was called, uh, music five, I think, which is the, this really old computer music language that he would have written his compositions with. Um, and I was really inspired by a lot of these, um, early pioneers of, uh, computer music and I really, really enjoyed sort of researching, um, these early synthesis technique papers, um, finding old articles in ICMC, uh, uh proceedings or, um, AES journals, like all these, um, synthesis techniques that were developed in the eighties when, or maybe late seventies and, and eighties when the people didn't have, uh, computers where they could try it out in real time, like or patch something together in Max or anything like that. They had to write a program sometimes on punch cards and, uh, wait days for the sun, the results to come out. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I found that really amazing. And, um, I, I just, yeah, enjoyed like trying to find out as much from the literature as I could about a particular technique and then, take some of those ideas and play around with them in, in Max or synth edit and, you know, try and connect up the amplitude curves that you use in to make a shepherd tone to, uh, delay lines instead of oscillators. And that, that's, you know, rough, roughly how you make a, uh, shepherd tone flanger, that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, it was just, a a sort of, um, curiosity and um experimental approach um that led me to finding something which i thought could make a product that um was different to what was available on the market and in terms of virtual cz which is my other main uh plugin that i've developed myself um that was um that came about because again i was uh fascinated by the uh, phase distortion synthesis technique. Um, and I was trying to implement uh, phase distortion oscillators in, in Max. And to do so, I'd, I would do things like looking at the Casio patents um, from a long time ago, which uh, have all these uh, drawings of the waveforms. And um, I, um, yeah, I made uh, a Max patch that uh, basically um, did 
did the phase distortion synthesis algorithm a bit like on the CZ101 synthesizer. Um, I released that and then actually I um, I started to think, uh, yeah, I, I'm forgetting actually the sequence of events here, but I, I got the opportunity to make um, a Max for Live device for Ableton. Like this was when Max for Live just uh, had just come out and they wanted to um, package some um, devices built with Max for Live um, or to, to, to put them on their website and, and uh, make Ableton Live packs that could be installed. Um, so yeah, I, I had this uh, Casio emulation Max patch and I thought this was a good candidate to turn into a, um, a Max for Live device. And uh, I tried to make some preset sounds that sounded just like the Casio CZ101 preset sounds. And um, they uh, they were pretty, pretty close. And um, yeah, I uh, later saw a post on the KVR forum from um, the, uh, the people who were founding, setting up Plugin Boutique, which is the, the plugin store who um, market Virtual CZ. And um, we discussed... Uh, they they were asking to to speak to plugin developers because they wanted to make some in-house uh, products and um we discussed the kind of things that i had uh um uh, developed and what i thought might make a good product and basically uh no one had done a good casio vsd um there was really good dx7 emulations um but this particular um vintage synthesizer that was one of the most uh or best-selling synthesizers in the 80s because it was cheap uh it has a bit of a reputation as this kind of cheesy sounding thing but also lots of people really like it uh and i thought this would make a good product that could actually shift some copies because uh lots of people have got fond memories of these synthesizers it was um a sound it's got sounds that were used on lots of classic um dance music tracks in the 80s early 90s um and yeah i felt like i wasn't so far off a good emulation of this and it would be a good good thing to um develop into a product so um that's how that project started and um yeah it, it has been quite a quite a success um yeah so that that also Eventually, um, because I had a DSP library for emulating Casio um, sounds, that eventually led to the collaboration with Arturia, who um, have a C, uh, their plugin CZV, which um, takes my emulation engine and extends it even further, improves the, uh, the emulation, adding in all sorts of complex modulations that weren't on the original device. Um, and yeah, it's um, it's got a, a lot of extra cool features, like a really amazing preset browser and things like this. So um, yeah, it's uh, I still like Virtual CZ, and I like to use both of them, CZV and Virtual CZ. And there's various um, comparisons of the two things on online on YouTube, which I find quite amusing. Um, they aren't exactly the same, um, but yeah. Well, that's that's really awesome. And 
I think I think yeah. If if you love synthesizers and you are able to make your own, which emulates the one that you liked from your from your early days, and it's commercially successful, and it leads to future uh, contract work or collaborations, then I think it's it's really uh, a dream dream fulfilled. And I've listened to the examples of uh, of your virtual CZ. Uh, I think the ones you have on SoundCloud, and uh, they're they're really spectacular and i will link to this to them in the in the episode notes uh for sure and uh yeah i think it's also a very good tip that was maybe a little bit hidden uh but i i found it all out also recently with the autotune it's it's really great to look at patents that expired and and see the technology beyond some uh maybe yeah old inventions but still the one ones that were groundbreaking and uh this is quite a fascinating exercise to now program the stuff you know using modern frameworks and modern c++ that uh, were uh, secretly uh patent uh, they were patented to be preserved back in the day so thank you thank you also for this and uh I do. I, do I guess correctly then? When once your plugins were kind of known in the community, and you also had a lot of personal contacts with with various companies, uh, then you started to get more and more uh, contract work for plugins. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, at, at this time. Um, there weren't so many audio programmers uh, easily Googleable, or uh, there wasn't a big uh, Discord community full of uh, people looking for jobs to do with Juice and things like this. So, uh, yeah, I um, I was able to uh, to get lots of freelance jobs at the time, um, and um, I did lots of tuition as well. Um, so one, yeah, did some one on one tuition trying to teach people what I'd learned about uh, making things with juice or iPlug or whatever. Um, but yeah, I, um, th there were several like companies and, uh, people using iPlug, which, um, led me to get some iPlug specific work at times as well. Um, because I basically with, with iPlug, I, I took over this open source project that had was originally developed by the uh the developers of reaper um and i i sort of uh main, maintained it for several years um so i was quite visible as the the iplug guy and uh still am i guess but um yeah so, so yeah that, that yeah uh, sorry please please uh, continue no, it's okay. Carry on. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I definitely want to touch on, on iPlug and I want to, to expand on this, but I wanted to uh, ask, is there anything that comes to your mind that you could uh, share with people, as you said, who are actively looking for freelance audio plugin jobs? Is also the audio programmer uh, market saturated or is there something that people can do to stand out? Um, I don't think it's actually saturated. Um, I still see plenty of um, adverts for um, VSD programmer required. Um, unfortunately, there's also a lot of uh, 
a lot of people who've got um, unrealistic ideas about how much it costs to develop um, your own plugin. I'm, I'm talking about people who maybe don't have a technical background but think they've got a brilliant idea and they they think they can uh, basically uh, get something made on the cheap and uh, uh, yeah so that you see see quite a lot of posts on the juice forum for instance of about people looking for for VST plugin developers um, but those kinds of jobs um, they're not always um a bad thing to to, to do um it, you obviously don't let anyone exploit you and but uh <laughs> yeah sometimes you can uh work on something that's uh that ends up being very successful and and use that experience to get your next gig um so um yeah it's um you, you do need this kind of track record of products that you've ideally shipped uh if if you can make your own um things that look very polished and uh maybe put them on github so people can see what clean code you write or um uh what skills you've got uh that's a really good way of um being visible um there's also a lot of uh, a lot of people who get very involved in the online communities um kind of presenting their their projects or other other things like that so you you do have to make an effort to be visible these days i think because there are so many people who are are visible via very um prolific github pages or um helping everyone on on discord communities and this kind of thing um so yeah i think you need to have some evidence of a some kind of track record of things that you've made if you haven't got the had the opportunity to um to work for any um, known brands um make some open source things and and try and make them as good as uh you possibly can um yeah you need a track okay that's that's yeah sorry nope carry on <laughs> i'm just saying that it's a very very solid piece of advice so have some solid track record of the work you did and ideally put this on, on GitHub. So uh, you can either present your own work there or you can maybe uh, participate in some open source uh, project, for example, iPlug2, <laughs> to name an example. And, uh, and additionally, you can also try to present on conferences or on youtube your work or in various forums and you can also try to help others and uh, yeah so i think people people can take a, a away a lot a lot from this is there anything you'd like to add on this yeah i think maybe just um don't be too afraid of um getting involved with these communities or presenting things um because yeah everyone uh gets better the more they do these things and uh you can't hide your work forever um until you really reach a certain standard um i shudder a bit to think of the some of the stuff that people might find like the questions that i asked on the maxim sp forum 20 years ago this kind of thing but 
yeah, it doesn't doesn't really matter at the end of the day. Um, people will can see what you uh, your early work, and they can see what you do now, and they can come to their own conclusion about whether they hire you or not, or this kind of thing. So, um, I just don't be afraid to get involved um, and maybe put stuff up publicly, uh, even if you, it's not perfect. Okay, that's a. Uh... That's also a very good tip tip for me uh, because I'm always, uh, you know, very insecure about the code I write. I want to really make make it perfect before I show it to anyone. Uh, but definitely, it's it's easier to criticize someone than to step out, step up, and show uh, what you've been working on, even if it's not perfect. So yeah, thank you, thank you for these words as well. You also said about uh, collaborating or like working with uh, big brands, and uh, what what really struck me is that you've done contract work uh, for Focusrite on the plugin suite that actually is shipped with the with their Scarlet interfaces. Uh, so I, I, as I understand correctly, it's the Red plugin suite, uh, which also I use uh, heavily. So it's it's really cool to be able to talk to you about this. So how this opportunity uh, did come to life and uh, how did this whole process look like? Um, so yeah, this this was quite a long time ago, um, but uh, it, it basically came about because I was um, the iPlug guy on on online and um, Focusrite had some some legacy plugins that were built using iPlug, um, and um, yeah, they uh, at, at that time they were quite a different kind of company. They weren't publicly traded, and um, so yeah, it was. Um, I think it was probably a lot smaller and maybe didn't have so many in-house people for certain things. Um, so yeah, they, um, they needed to, to maintain some products and to, to release some new ones. Um, and, uh, yeah, I was involved as a contractor for that. Um, so yeah, it, because it, these old plugins were built with iPlug. I, I was able to um, quickly get, get new versions up and running and um, uh, stuff like this. Um, so yeah, I, I'm pretty sure they're very much using Deuce these days based on uh, <laughs> their conference presentations. And um, so yeah, I, um, yeah, I, I don't think they've switched to iPlug too, unfortunately, but never mind. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but speaking of <clears throat> speaking of iPlug two, yeah. we're circling around this topic, and I think it's finally time to to delve into it. Uh, I think, as you said, uh, if if anyone knows iPlug two, they know you. If anyone knows you online, they know iPlug two. So, could you describe your history with the original iPlug and how did iPlug 2 then come to life? Yeah, so um, the original iPlug was released in 2008. I, um, I found it and uh, found it was a very simple um, 
implementation of a, a plugin, the sort of abstraction of a plugin, the, the class that you impl implement to make your plugin. It was very easy to, to get my head around. Um, this is when I was um, far less experienced with C++ and not very confident at all with it. But, uh, you know, it was very easy to understand. You know, one line to create a parameter and uh, to, to set up the range of the parameter and the units and um, things like that. Um, one one function that processes the audio, one function that called when the sample rate changes, this kind of thing. Um, it was just a really minimal plugin abstraction. Um, so I was able to use that to to make my first C++ plugin uh, endless series. And I um, kind of, because iPlug was open source and liberally licensed, um, I made my own version. Um, and I explicitly tried to make very good template projects. So an Xcode project and a Visual Studio project that anyone could just open and click compile. Okay, they, maybe they had to install the VST to SDK first, but once you did that, the project should just build a plugin. Um, and this was because I got so frustrated in the past with um, uh, other, other libraries that didn't have um, examples that compiled. So yeah, I I made this um, template project, which um, is actually still kind of there in iPlug2 these days. Um, and it was just uh, something that let you compile all the different formats pretty simply uh, so that you could just jump in and, and implement the plugin code without worrying too much, without writing loads of boilerplate code each time. Um, also, I, making a GUI in iPlug is very simple. It's a bit like um, when you're declaring parameters, it's just like one line of code to add, add um, one of the, the classes for making a dial or a slider. Um, and yeah, it, I sort of, I built up my own version, which was called WDLOL. Um, iPlug was part of a library called WDL which is the uh, the developers of Repo, like put all their open source code in this repo. They've since removed iPlug because they weren't maintaining that. And and my version WDL OL was kind of the, the one that everyone was using for a while because it was the most heavily maintained. Um, and at this stage, Juice was um, basically one, one person. Uh, this was before it, it got acquired by Rolly. Um, and it wasn't um, such a competitive, um, it wasn't a, uh, a no-brainer for a company to, to use Juice at that point. Um, yeah, I nowadays Juice is uh, an incredibly impressive product that's um, impossible for an individual to um, sort of compete with. It's It's got sort of four or five very talented uh, engineers who uh, you know, are paid well to, to work on it every day and to document it well and to make extremely good um, or 
make make tests to to make sure all the functionality works properly. Um, so yeah, it's it's quite a different thing now to what it was then. And at that time, like lots of different individuals had their own plugin frameworks or way of doing VST and audio unit from the same code base. And so iPlug was a bit of a stronger contender for uh, what people might choose to use. Um, um, so yeah, it was um, something that stuck around for quite a while. Um, I actually kind of switched to using Juice um, until I um, was um, doing that PhD uh, and uh, I, I sort of, I was doing lots of uh, changes uh, to Juice to make it, make my own uh, plugin implementation that was a bit simpler. Um, and I was sort of thinking, well, I've got this iPlug thing and uh, why don't I carry on with that? Because in the, in the past I'd, um, I've, I mentioned that I used different technologies to make um, plugins over the years. And I always got a bit frustrated that there were certain things that I couldn't have ownership of certain bits of the code in the product that I was shipping that, um, if, if I found a problem, I wasn't able to fix that because it was in the third party code. And, um, although with, with juice, it's, um, it's a different situation because you have the source code. So it's highly likely that you can track down a bug, if, even if it is in the, um, the juice code base. Um, but in that case, you you have to submit a, a pull request to the Juice developers, and um, it's very likely that it's not in in the format that they want, and it might be in a backlog of a thousand other pull requests from from other developers. And um, so, what happens a lot uh, is that companies and individuals end up maintaining a fork of Juice where they've got all these different changes to juice that means that every time juice gets updated they have to like reapply their changes and hopefully um they don't break and um there's also something weird i think about people who invest lots of their own personal time into making stuff for the juice ecosystem because at the end of the day that is a commercial product and it is owned by some people who you are you're making them richer by making their products um, more competitive or things like this so I I felt a stronger alignment to the sort of uh, liberally licensed open source um, ethos um, and thought I'm better off investing my time in making my own plugin framework um, which I can have complete ownership of um, uh, rather than trying to keep track with with um, with juice, sometimes I I wonder whether this was the right decision or not because uh, <laughs> I think I could have shipped many more products uh, had I not done this uh, because I I obviously spend a lot of my time um, fixing bugs in the framework rather than shipping products. Uh, so 
that's kind of why I say it's it's a bit of a no-brainer or like it's a good business decision for people to use juice because like you don't want to have to spend all your time um making things work on the latest version of mac os or the latest you know whatever thing apple changed this time you'd much like if you're a small com- plug-in company it's much better if you spend time innovating making a great new synthesizer or a great new effect and all these things take a lot of time and uh yeah so i can understand why companies these days look at um a product like juice and say like that that is a very good business decision for us to to use that um but then sometimes things happen like with the the recent uh uh fiasco to do with the unity uh game development framework where the uh the owners of the company decided that they need to make more money so they changed the licensing structure and now lots of uh game developers whose whole careers were based on that particular framework um, find themselves in an awkward position because they um, their, their indie game, which uh, <laughs> was based on a certain revenue model, like is now not financially viable or, or something like that. Um, so yeah, there are advantages to basing your products on liberally licensed source code or source code that you have ownership of or can have some kind of ownership of um so yeah i think think there's still a place for um iplug2 uh alongside juice and it's certainly like i i i feel happy that i i um have that available to me um set up the way that i like um and for instance, I've used it in a in a new project that I'm uh, presenting at ADC, um, which is a library that um, I might license to people in the future uh, if anyone's interested. Um, and I've used it to develop some audio unit plugins that go inside that library. Um, and obviously, if if they were built with Juice, then this would be a different situation because I. I don't have um, the rights to to do that. Um, potentially, it depends on the circumstances. But um, I, I am pleased to to have um, iPlug Two available. I should I should mention as well that iPlug Two is not just me. It's uh, a huge amount of the work has been done by um, Alex Harker, who um, is uh, yeah a very talented uh, programmer who also uses iPlug and. Um, yeah, he he's done lots of lots of the stuff to do with the the graphics um, elements of it, um, which is all very complicated stuff. So, yeah, he deserves equal credit for iPlug Two. Uh, that's yeah. uh, really really cool, and uh, I especially was uh, amazed that if I understand correctly, if you build uh, if you create your plugin with iPlug Two then you can not only deploy your code into a plugin for a digital audio workstation, but it's also uh, set up for, for iOS, right? But also for the web, am I correct? That you can easily create a website that runs this audio code using a web assembly. Yeah, exactly. So um, I, um, I went to the, the first ever 
web audio conference. Um, and um, when I was there, there was a presentation by this guy called y Yari Klamola, who's a, a Finnish software engineer, um, who, yeah, we, we, we share uh some interests like uh phase distortion synthesis he'd he'd written some uh papers that extended phase distortion synthesis and things like this but anyway at the web audio conference he was presenting um some very interesting work that he'd done where he had uh compiled some some vst plugins to work in the web browser um and this was using a tool called mscripting um which was developed by someone at Mozilla and uh, it basically converted C++ code into a form of JavaScript. Uh, this was before WebAssembly existed. And yeah, because I was really into to audio plugin development and um, well known because of iPlug, um, he uh, was interested in collaborating on um, basically a, a more formalized version of what he had presented, um, an SDK for people to port their VST plugin code to work in the web browser. This was something that we worked on together called Web Audio Modules. And I think we presented a paper at the, um, I think it was maybe nine or... Uh, I can't remember exactly which conference it was, but it was in, uh, I think, SMC conference in 2015. We presented version one of uh, Web Audio Modules. Um, and this was, yeah, a, a C API plus some JavaScript boilerplate to let you um, load this uh, uh, ASMJS code in, in and run your audio plugin, integrating it with the Web Audio API. Um, Later on, uh, we updated it because WebAssembly was released, and this is a um, a much more standardized way of um, creating um, a, a binary that will run on all sorts of different platforms, including uh, in the web browser. Um, so yeah, the the, the late, a later paper we did um, included support for WebAssembly. Um, and yeah, I um, this is part of the, the reason why I, I kind of got interested in um, developing iPlug into iPlug 2 was thinking about how we could use this or develop this API in a, in a way that you could easily produce um, a web page from the C++ code. So the same, exactly the same plugin abstraction could be used for VST on the desktop as well as um, a web page so that anyone could try your um, your audio processing code um, just by visiting a URL. Um, and yeah, so uh, I basically rewrote I, iPlug 2's uh, <laughs> uh, the, the way that you interact with uh, parameters and um, there's some specifics to do with how the the, the web audio API deals with um, uh, audio processing and how how you can have in order to make a GUI you have to make a completely separate binary uh, so that 
the GUI has to be done in one bit of WebAssembly and the audio processing has to be done in another bit of WebAssembly. And uh, it, it, it required some changes to the way that the framework worked so that this was possible without um, making it very complicated. Uh, so you can still use the same sort of simple iPlug um, plug-in abstraction class and quite uh, easily convert that into this um, format that, that works as a web page, um, which is actually two different WebAssembly versions of your plugin, uh, one for the GUI, one for the DSP, communicating via messages. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's relatively complicated, but um, it's uh, it, it works and it's been used by um, Surreal Machines, which is a, a, a nice plugin company who've built it into uh, their website. So they've got, they've got a demo of um, their plugin that just runs on the web page. Um, people can play a few different audio examples through that and uh, play around with the parameters. And that's a lot quicker than uh, installing a VST and that kind of thing. Um, yeah. There's, um, it's not ideal. It's kind of like a, a proof of concept still a bit because um, one one thing about converting C++ code to, to WebAssembly is that you end up reproducing a lot of what's already available in the browser. So browsers are really excellent for doing user interfaces. Uh, but when we convert an iPlug plugin to work in the browser, it's um, recompiling all of the, the iPlug graphics engine um, and as well as sort of uh, duplicating functionality that's already in the browser, it ends up um, bloating the binary quite a lot. So, you know, web websites are meant to be small things and people obsess about making them, you know, 10 kilobytes or 20 kilobytes. But uh, if you convert an, a plugin that's written in C++ to WebAssembly, unfortunately, it's going to end up being a bit bigger than that. But for certain circumstances, that doesn't doesn't matter that much. Um, yeah. So uh, that's really amazing because uh, because of how much work <laughs> went into this framework, uh, especially that it's not uh, how to say it commercially funded at the same time, and also it's it's amazing that you not only developed iPlug two but also Web Audio modules that uh, are currently. Uh, they were also presented on, on at ADC last year uh, by Michel Buffa. Yeah, so so he, that's the same thing, right? Yeah, so um, Yari and myself are not so much involved with it now, but um, there's lots of other people interested in this idea, and um, so there is a, a team of um, maybe ten or so people who've. Some of some of whom are developing web-based DAWs, and um, I think uh, Mich Michelle is um, developing a sort of pedal pedal board. Um, he's a, in, really into guitar, and uh, yeah, so they take the project forward and sort of um, yeah. It, it was a the problem originally with it was that it was a little bit of a chicken and egg situation. There wasn't really a web-based DAW. Um, to load plugins into so 
the iPlug2 stuff that just produces a standalone web page with which hosts the plugin. Um, but you can't really create multiple. Uh, you can't create a network of iPlug2 web audio modules. Um, so yeah, this uh, this group of people they they take it a bit further and they develop um, more of an API about how to connect these things together and. Um, um, yeah, it's. Um, I've seen some pretty cool, cool demos. Yeah, and uh, if such a DAW in the browser eventually appears, the web audio modules will be there. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And yeah. and uh, I wanted to ask you maybe one more question about uh, iPlug two because it's uh, then such a large framework and. Uh, Obviously, you need to deal with a lot of platforms. As I understand, you are also working on supporting Linux and, and CMake. Um, could you maybe share what were the biggest challenges from working on, on such a framework from your personal perspective? Um. I'm trying to think. Um, certainly, uh, I find because I'm not really using uh, Linux in a desktop environment on a daily basis, um, the progress has been very slow there. So, um, yeah, we've had quite a few contributions from third parties, but um, because it's not something that is directly linked to anything that I want to release any product I'm working on or um, I, I find it hard to find the time to to dedicate to to getting the necessary um, work done to, to merge all of that code so I feel a little bit bad about that because we have had some very good contributions from third parties so yeah the, the main problem is time is <laughs> uh, there's just not enough time to to make it uh, quite how I want it to be. Um, um, yeah, we we received quite a bit of uh, funding from from Google, um, but unfortunately haven't had the time yet to uh, to spend that. And uh, if yeah, we are we are looking for people who uh, might be able to to develop the Linux support and this kind of thing. So. If you're one of those, uh, please reach out. Um, but um, yeah, I, I guess um, yeah, su supporting all of the different platforms, um, I, I find it. Uh, yeah, I, I, I obviously I, I work now in the industry, and I've had a lot of experience of how audio software that goes to many, many users uh, is developed in, in, in the industry. And having, having learned all about this kind of side of audio programming, there's lots of things I'd like to change about iPlug2. I'd like to you know, have very, very rigorous testing um, on every single aspect of it. But um, unfortunately, uh, there's just not enough time to, to think about those things. And I'd much rather, if I've got a little bit of time to work on it, um, focus on adding a function to 
or adding functionality to do something creative with it, uh, some kind of new cool GUI feature or uh, yeah, some little uh, DSP class that's going to be useful for everyone. Um, I'd much rather work on something fun like that with my spare time than uh, yeah, add all of the uh, sort of... Uh, industrial quality uh code checks and yeah yeah i'd love to rewrite the whole thing from scratch to be honest but uh that's not gonna happen anytime soon <laughs> i plug three then yeah <laughs> and um regarding your personal projects uh could you share a little bit more about the project you mentioned about uh, spatial audio that you that you're working on for ADC 23? Yeah, so um, for a, a few years now, I've been working on an, an iOS app. Um, it's also a Mac OS app. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a spatial audio file player. Uh, so as I mentioned earlier, I was, um, I've always been working with Ambisonics and this was my, uh, or a spatial audio format of choice um but a lot of the uh sort of uh, plugins that are coming out these days and uh a lot of the distribution uh for spatial audio is is centered around dolby atmos which is a sort of a, a different kind of spatial audio it's object-based spatial audio um but there's lots of composers um and engineers uh artists who work with ambisonics Lots of people in the games industry use it to um, record 3D sounds for, for VR and things like this. Um, so yeah, I've, I've developed an app and it's uh, a way of playing back these files on um, on iPhone or on Mac using AirPods or using any headphones, in fact, because I've, I've uh, basically added um, a way of... Uh, doing head tracking using um a machine learning algorithm using the, the webcam so yeah it's a spatial audio app that binauralizes ambisonic files uh and a byproduct of it is an engine that other people could use to do the same thing in their own product on with a different gui or maybe a specialized product for a particular album or something like this uh so this is a swift library this is what my adc talk is about it's called spatial audio kit and um it's basically a um a very simple way of playing back spatial audio files um and getting the head tracking working with just a few lines of, of swift code um very easy to integrate into a an app that you might build with Swift UI, uh, which is Apple's latest and greatest UI framework. Um, and yeah, it's, um, it's really taking shape now. Uh, I still have to finish it for, uh, the ADC talk, but, uh, it's, it's nearly there. Um, and yeah, I'm excited to, to present it properly, um, uh, at ADC. So, yeah, me too. And I, I hope to be there uh, to watch the presentation. And sorry for taking your time then of uh, working on this project. <laughs> but but I really appreciate that you also took the time to, to share this story 
with the listeners. Uh, so maybe one last question about your uh, career, if I may. You're now working at Ableton uh, at uh, as a full-time developer, if I understand it correctly. And uh, could you maybe uh, tell the story of how it came to be and uh, how uh, why why did you make this decision to move to Berlin? Um, yeah, so I was doing some freelancing um, for the company Surreal Machines um, that I mentioned earlier. I actually built the uh, the web um, web based demo of their their product, um, and uh, yes, my my colleague um, uh, Ableton is uh, involved with that company and uh, was forming a new team here and uh, was looking for for people to to form that team with um and uh obviously lights why i did and so yeah i um sort of had i didn't apply to a, a job advert i i through a connection that i'd made over many years i um was in the right place at the right time to um be asked oh you wouldn't like to come and work at ableton would you obviously then i had to do coding challenges and several interviews and things like this but um luckily i i passed so uh yeah that's how i ended up here nice and uh, what can you share maybe what are you working on at ableton uh i cannot share you what i'm working on unfortunately um i am in the sound team which is broadly responsible for instruments and um effects and Uh, we also have lots of people working on sound content for packs and for third-party packs. Um, but uh, yeah, I can tell you I'm working on something very, very exciting. Uh, it's really a fun uh, thing to be working on. It's not not like anything I've done before. Um, and yeah, I'm excited uh, for when people will finally get to uh, experience it. Um, it's also Yeah, it's personally exciting for me working on something that's going to affect such a vast amount of people. Uh, previously, I've made some plugins which sold a few copies, but uh, nowhere near the kind of they didn't have anywhere near the kind of reach that, uh, that Ableton has. So that's that's really exciting. I understand, and I'm uh, excited also to learn about this uh, in the future when the thing gets finally released. So. Uh, You obviously had a very intensive career. You dipped your fingers in a lot of different areas of, of DSP. And it seems to me that you used uh, practically every possible audio technology out there. So SynthEdit, Max MSP, uh, and then C++, then web, the, all the web stuff, now the Swift, and uh, I think uh, you also were involved in with Faust, right, to integrate it into iPlug 2, and probably a lot of other uh, things that we haven't mentioned here. Could you maybe uh, share what's your process of learning this, these things? Uh, how do you go about learning all these new technologies? Or is it that they're all the same, it's just the minor details that vary? Um, it varies a lot there. They're not all the same. Um, 
Yeah, I'm. Um, it's hard to describe how I learn these things, but um, uh, it, it often starts with um, finding examples that are out there, like looking for an open source project that someone's built with Faust or um, going through the Faust examples. Faust is really one of the best things about it is it's got an amazing library of um, DSP that it comes with. So there's lots of uh, stuff to learn from there. Um, um, yeah, I just, um, I'm quite, um, uh, I, I persevere quite a lot when something doesn't work. I keep on trying um and uh yeah that might be a blessing or it might be a curse uh, but i'm not sure it, um eventually i i managed to learn these things sometimes i might um basically be cargo culting copy pasting bits <laughs> of code and i'm i'm not ashamed to admit but uh yeah i i don't try and like if i if there's a new if I'm trying to do something in Swift, I might start with an example of the thing that I'm trying to do that someone made, and then I might adapt what they made to do what I want to do, um, rather than like spend six weeks with the Apple documentation working out how to build that thing from scratch. Um, I'm not saying this is the best way for everyone to do such things, and sometimes I find there's gaps in my knowledge, which is a bit frustrating. And I kind of wish that I had learned all of the basics of a, of a, a language, for instance. Um, so yeah, it, I like to like, actually, I like the things that I make to see the light of day. I like to ship things. And, um, sometimes that involves a little bit of, uh, a few shortcuts to, to uh, to get there. But, uh, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question or not, but um, yeah, yeah, yeah I definitely. So yeah. uh, it's uh, your style is to to look at examples and example projects, and ideally start with some template or some basic setup, and then to modify from there. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's a it's a very good approach, and but then you hit some, of course, you hit some barriers where you don't even know what to Google for to find a particular missing step but you eventually also overcome this so uh, yeah i i don't see why this approach wouldn't be a valid one especially with with all your uh, you know track record of plugins and and uh, frameworks and whatnot i so uh sorry you wanted to add to this yeah i mean uh one one thing that i think is very useful is if you've got the skills to make um little test tools like command line tools or shell scripts or python scripts um if you're not sure about like certain aspects of what an example that you're um trying to implement like breaking things down and like reproducing them on a on a on that kind of level um i find it's something that i i often uh do and i find i find that that's some technique very useful um and yeah, in this day and age, when you have something like ChatGPT available, uh, which is, although it might not be able to like make um, a product from scratch for you, 
like I think a lot of people are saying, "Oh, please make me this uh, a synthesizer plugin or something like that." That's the, that's not gonna work. <laughs> you, I feel like if you have some some experience of developing these things, you using something like ChatGPT, you can accelerate the the rate at which you can try things out. So I just talked about making little little tools to test things, but ChatGPT is absolutely excellent at doing that kind of thing where it's not that good at making VSD plugins um, or complete products. So yeah, I think that's um, that's quite a, an exciting development. Uh, and, and one more thing is that there's uh, interesting sort of just-in-time compilation-based tools coming out. So Faust has had a, a JIT compiler for for quite a long time, and uh, Max MSP has a new technology called Rainbow, um, which is a, a similar kind of um, just-in-time compilation. So you get very good performance, but you can iterate very quickly um, in a f sort of familiar graphical environment. Uh, C major is another example of um, that similar technology, but more based on text-based code. And I think being able to to iterate on on things very quickly with instant results, um, and also get good performance, um, is a real real luxury that um, everyone should take advantage of. Um, yeah, I think it's going to um, help people be creative um, when they don't have to spend ages dealing with compiler errors and stuff like that, <laughs> and out of bounds memory access or yeah things just crashing. Yeah. Or, or implicit implicit float to int conversion. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's boring. <laughs> that, that's a big one. That's a big one. Yeah. Uh, so speaking of, of being creative, because you know so many technologies that are related to developing audio software, uh, if you were to sit down and prototype and develop an audio plugin, what technical stack would you use? Um, I have to be honest and say I, I just would make an iPlug uh, C++ project um, because I am so familiar with this process that that is the quickest way for me to to do such a thing. Um, yeah, I um, have my own DSP library that I've built up over the years and I can piece things together using that um, in much a similar way as you might do with something like Max or um, yeah, any of these um, languages that have got a, a library of, of DSP code with them. Um, yeah, uh, I would do it with iPlug. Um, it lets me make something very quickly. I don't have to do lots of boilerplate code. I can do parameters with one line. This this kind of thing makes it all very easy for me to just fire up a new iPlug project. Um, yeah, um, I can completely understand if someone's how someone could do the same thing with a great juice template, and uh, I've seen some really nice ones lately. It's really fantastic when you can also have it set up with uh, the CI. Uh, stuff already there so that 
you can even now click a temp use template button on github and you clone a repository and um everything is there ready for you um it already builds the thing in the cloud so yeah i um i love this kind of stuff uh whether it's iplug or deuce or whatever framework you want to use um it's amazing what you can do very quickly these days yeah so i wholeheartedly agree and uh, i ended up because some patterns repeat over and over again i also ended up writing my own uh template for an audio plugin with with juice but also with with package management and unit tests and i i then started using it on my own so that was a shameless plug that, that everyone should check out you know my, my audio plugin template hint hint and uh, are you then i guess then you develop on mac right i'm mainly um using mac day to day but i use windows all the time as well um i'm um yeah i i have a mac laptop but i have a windows desktop um I, yeah i have to do i have to use mac and windows uh and also linux for for work um and yeah i'm normally if i'm just trying to experiment with something I'm, i'm doing that on my on my mac um and yeah i use vs code i use xcode and i use the command line a lot um yeah that's pretty much my my stack of tools <laughs> okay thank you for sharing because uh at least we we know that you know it's it's you behind all this not some secret powerful technology <laughs> that no one has access to and uh if someone wanted to follow your steps and uh also uh learn audio programming i know that in the scope of our discussion it's a very broad topic because yeah what do we mean now by by audio programming specifically but uh which resources would you recommend for example i know you have this uh, awesome music dsp list on your on your github uh is it is it uh, the go to place you'd recommend people to or you would add something to this list now um yeah i i try to keep that list up to date and it it is um very personal it's it's my favorite uh resources and i think a bit unlike other awesome lists it's got quite a lot of uh sort of explanations about why i like things um uh, so some of these lists are just like links which don't really say why you should click on that link or not um so yeah i would um would recommend people check out my awesome music dsp list it's really an awesome audio programming list but um yeah it's uh it's got some dsp it's got some plugin frameworks it's got some what are my favorite uh tools for development it's got some links to youtube videos um so yeah i in terms of uh books like i i really like this uh, old book called um the um uh it's called dodge and it's by dodge and jerse and it's called uh computer music i think is that right um there is the computer music tutorial by curtis rhodes and there oh, i love this yeah, one that's recently had a 
a new edition, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. But there's, I think it's called, yeah, Dodge and Jerst Computer Music. And uh, what I liked about this one was it's it's got all these sort of um, block diagrams of uh, these early synthesis techniques used, um, and uh, it's quite, it's, it's just got lots of these interesting early early DSP techniques. Um, it the computer music tutorial kind of aged a little bit, but obviously it's it's been updated. Um, but this one was more about the synthesis techniques. Um, and I think the Will Perkle books, which I saw you did a review of, I think they're very good for someone wanting to get into audio plugin development. Um, yeah, I think there's. Um, there's not many books that deal with these sort of uh, like virtual analog techniques um, in the same way. So, um, yeah, certainly if you're if that's the kind of um, thing that you want to do, then check out those. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, I think that's about it. I mean, you'd, you'd be a fool not to join the audio program at discord, which is very, very active these days. If, if you're interested in, um, that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, I, I think there's lots of interesting initiatives to do with machine learning and audio as well, which is probably the next big thing It's is already the, the big thing, but <laughs> yeah, if, uh, the whole uh, sort of uh, nature of uh, audio plugins is sort of shifting towards using machine learning based techniques. So um, there's plenty of communities um, to join where you can learn about that kind of thing as well. Um, so um, yeah, I think uh, if I was just starting out now, I, I would try and get a handle on those kinds of technologies as as well as some of the traditional um, audio programming techniques, but certain things are just entirely getting replaced by, uh, you know, train a neural network to do do that in, in instead of like doing all this um, hand coded uh, DSP. Like, and if the results are better, then uh, yeah, you're uh, you're going to waste your time by uh, implementing it the hard way. If if, if if you've got, I think it's important to, to get the skills to, to train, uh, train your own, uh, networks on things that are, are appropriate for that kind of, uh, um, task and, and to understand when, when it's good to use one thing and when it's good to use the other. So I, I see you've done a few presentations about that kind of topic, um, showing people how to, um, use a, use a neural network in a, in a plugin. And I think that's really cool. So definitely check out those <laughs> those resources yeah yeah so thank you thank you very much uh i think i think that's very such lists are very helpful and and uh, they're not always easy to find and as you said if you have an explanation why this particular position is on there then people also can make a more informed decision whether to pursue a certain technology or or not and uh at the end, uh, maybe more uh, leisure question is something that uh, I one one question that I typically ask people is how they do unit testing of audio code. But uh, the other question that I have is, do you listen to music while programming? 
Um, so do you listen to music while programming? I actually don't listen to music while programming. Um, especially if I can hear something with lyrics in, it's impossible. Um, I cannot focus on code and have a lyric in the background. Um, but normally I like it to be very, very quiet um, when I'm coding. Um, okay. Yeah. I understand. And uh, I really admire this approach. <laughs> Maybe I'll get to this level one day. And the last question from my side is, if someone wanted to contact you, where do you recommend they go? Um, well, probably link LinkedIn, um, or you can find a, an email address on my website, which is ollilarkin.co.uk. Um, yeah, on LinkedIn, if you're going to send me a message, please write something, because uh, I get quite a lot of people just adding me, and uh, it's difficult to know why. Uh, often it's because I work at Ableton and they want to get a job at Ableton. So give me give me a bit of an introduction to why you're uh, messaging me, and and it's more likely that I'm going to add you. So um, yeah, LinkedIn. I'm also on Twitter at Ollie Larkin, but uh, or X. Uh, I'm probably not going to be on that much longer, but we'll see. So. Okay, thank you, thank you so much. Uh, I think you've broken a record, so I have, I have my notes here. Uh, definitely, they ha there hasn't been an interview yet with so many positions here. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, I know that uh, this podcast has been been running for over one and a half hours, but I believe that the listeners will appreciate every bit of your story, all of your tips, and they also find the parts that they can relate to in their. Uh, struggle to become all your programmers themselves and definitely you are an inspiring figure for a lot of people and to me personally it's it's amazing how many different technologies vastly different technologies you used uh with with huge success basically so thank you thank you once again for for this interview and good luck with your ADC 23 project and the talk, and I hope to see you in person in London. Okay, thanks for having me. Look forward to see you too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, everyone. That was Oliver Larkin, an audio programming legend. Thanks a lot, Oli, for agreeing on this interview and staying so long to answer all of my questions. And to you, this, dear listeners, I can only say, please go to Audio Developers Conference 2023 and watch his talk. And while you're there, I also invite you to listen to my talk at this conference. If you're curious about the people, places, and references mentioned in this podcast episode, go to dwolfsound.com slash talk015. You can find all the resources there. If you'd like to support this podcast in some way, then please consider giving it a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, subscribing on the, all the podcast streaming platforms, giving it a like on YouTube, and maybe comment. And of course, if you can, then subscribe to the channel as well. Thank you for listening. Thank you for all the feedback I got. I really, really appreciate your support. And if you're curious how to become someone like Oli Larkin, if you felt inspired, then maybe the audio plugin developer checklist is a resource for you at dwolfsound.com slash checklist. 
Thanks for listening and see you in the next one. Take care.